Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, hope on the horizon to get rid of the carbon tax, why Canada is closed for business, and the mainstream media's curious double standard on press freedom. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show, the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North, the first episode of the week. It is great to have you tuned into the program as we talk about a number of things that are happening in Canada, all seemingly coming to a head, but with a common thread between them. And we'll be talking later on in the show about the Tech Frontier decision to withdraw, the so-called resolution to the blockades that are still popping up around the country, and why Justin Trudeau should have dealt with this much sooner and also in a few moments about Alberta's carbon tax decision which is hopeful but at the same time not definitive champagne cork popping just yet and we'll explain why in a couple of moments but I do want to bring up this case first because a teacher at McMaster University a teaching assistant in sociology of course has decided that they are going to give students class credit for joining a blockade. This is buried in a CBC story about, quote, indigenous solidarity protests shutting down Hamilton, Niagara Go trains and blocking the highway. And Sonia Hill, who's uh, herself, it sounds like a Mohawk from Six Nations of Grand River, says the she will be supporting them. She says, I'm coming back tomorrow. I'm going to bring my students, make it a part of their credit their attendance to check in with me at the blockade. Now, when she says check in, I don't think she means just like show up with a box of Timbits, say, hey, how are you, and head back. She's actually making it part of class credit to break the law. And what do you want to bet that no one is going to say anything about it? I would certainly bet that no one is going to criticize this from McMaster University. I mean, after all, Jonathan Kay had a great tweet the other day where he was talking about a school that was doing a smudging ceremony, which is an indigenous ritual where you burn, I don't know if it's always sage or something, but you burn herbs and you smudge, you wave it around. And I'm not as a Christian, going to besmirch anyone's spiritual practices. But I will say that there is a double standard that exists when in the case of this smudging ceremony, people were allowed to do this when you would never be allowed to walk through and and burn incense in, in traditional Catholic form. And in particular, it was about how Queen's University is itself facilitating this. So a public university is saying, you're going to do this, and we're doing this, and it's been approved by the fire safety coordinator, and we encourage you to be involved in it in a way that you wouldn't with other spiritual rituals. So you've got this double standard that's existing between the way that an indigenous ritual or practice is viewed, whether it's a spiritual practice or whether it's a protest, versus the way that anyone else would be treated for doing the exact same thing. So we're going to see more of this as the week and the next couple of weeks, I think, go on. We'll talk about it later in the show. But I had to share that first. Class credit for joining a protest. Here I was thinking that skipping school gets you out of being graded for things, but little did I know. In any case, I want to talk about this 4-1 decision by the Alberta Court of Appeal to find the federal carbon tax unconstitutional. Now, this is big news for a couple of reasons. Firstly, 
of the three court decisions on the carbon tax, this is the first one to say we are against it. We do not believe it's constitutional. The Ontario case, the Saskatchewan case, both were split rulings, but both ultimately sided with the federal government. This was 4-1, so not a slam dunk necessarily, but still very decisive. And it called the legislation a Trojan horse because it was basically finding that it's a backdoor into the government regulating and legislating on virtually anything under the auspices of environmentalism. Because I was covering the Ontario carbon tax case in April of last year, so coming up on a year ago. And the arguments that I was seeing and hearing from the Ontario government were very sound. They were basically saying that if you allow the government to hijack this, you're allowing the government to create out of thin air issues that it says are under federal jurisdiction. And not that I'm a constitutional lawyer, but as a journalist who's covered constitutional cases, I have somewhat of a solid grasp on the issues at hand here. And there are very specific grounds that the federal government can claim as its so-called heads of power, areas where it can claim jurisdiction. And only on six occasions have Canadian courts granted the federal government a new head of power, basically. And not even in the sense of a new head of power, but they've found exceptions to these that favor the federal government. Only six occasions, which means it's rare, which means it's important to protect provincial jurisdiction. And the Alberta Court of Appeal found this. They found that, uh, here's the, the line, time has not eroded the province's rights to have the powers assigned to them under our constitution sedulously respected. While some may view the division of powers as anachronistic or a barrier to uniform action in service of a common good, the division of powers remains key to our federal state. It is part of the fabric of Canada itself. The federal and provincial governments are co-equals, each level of government being supreme within its sphere. The federal government is not the parent, and the provincial governments are not its children. Now, the one thing that I found interesting about the Alberta ruling is that the very first section, the very first paragraph, was talking about how much of a threat climate change is. They said, calls to action to save the planet we all share evoke strong emotions, and properly so. The dangers of climate change are undoubted, as are the risks flowing from failure to meet the essential challenge. It's undisputed that greenhouse gas emissions caused by people are a course of climate change, yada, yada, yada. They're basically saying here that the case is not a referendum or a verdict on climate change itself. Their case is not addressing the science. They're addressing the fundamental question of whether it is constitutional or not for the federal government to regulate greenhouse gas emissions under the auspices of climate change being a national concern. Because remember, the David Suzuki Foundation, which was an intervener in all cases, wanted the government to have license to do this because of emergency provisions in the Constitution. Basically, it's a national emergency. We can suspend the Constitution. That's what the Suzuki Foundation wanted. And in Ontario, the federal government actually opened the door to saying, eh, we, we kind of agree with that if the court finds it to have merit. Thankfully, the court didn't find it to have merit. But the court did find that sections one and two of the act were, in fact, unconstitutional. The 
first part of the act is the levy on various fuels. So that's the consumer carbon tax that you see on fuel pumps and home heating bills, etc. Part two is the output-based limits that you get on, on really large industrial emitters. So mines, really large factories, the oil sands, etc. And all of these things, I think, were part and parcel of, of a dilemma that originally was in the political grounds. I thought Canadians were going to reject the carbon tax at the polls. And I think they did in, in provinces like Alberta and Saskatchewan and, and Manitoba to some extent. But Trudeau won again, so you can't say that it was a wholesale rejection of the carbon tax. But what did happen is the federal government basically decided that it was going to put taxing for your own good as a fundamental pillar of its identity of the liberal brand, all in the name of ending climate change, when there is no direct correlation between a carbon tax and climate change solving. And the reason is that you have a competitive global economy and countries like India and China are not going to sacrifice their output for the same goal, but they're the ones who are actually emitters. They're the ones who are actually emitters. And we talked about this last week with Patrick Moore, how CO2, which is under the legislation, a greenhouse gas, is in his view, and he's got a PhD in this, he's not one of these just keyboard warrior types, is a positive for the environment. And we talked about that. If you haven't heard it, go back and listen to that episode. So I want to talk about the legal implications and the political implications of this carbon tax decision from the Alberta Court of Appeal. Joining me on the line now is Alberta Director Franco Terrazano from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Franco, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Hey, anytime. This is an important uh, ruling that came out yesterday, so happy to chat about it. And obviously, after the rulings in Ontario and Saskatchewan, which sided with the carbon tax, this is a, a particularly delightful uh, development in the case. Well, this was a big win for taxpayers in Alberta and across Canada. It was a 4-1 ruling that said that the federal carbon tax is unconstitutional. And like you said, it, it follows uh, split decisions that have come from Saskatchewan and Ontario. So, so clearly there's some strong legal arguments that are being made against the federal carbon tax. And, you know, it's really coming down to the wire. In March, we're going to be heading to the Supreme Court. And so far, we've had these three cases. We've had 15 judges hear the case and eight have ruled in favor of the carbon tax and seven have ruled that the carbon tax is unconstitutional. So it's really coming down to the wire. But taxpayers should have a, a lot of optimism heading into the final Supreme Court case. And it's worth noting, you're not just approaching this as a commentator. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation was an intervener, I think, in all three of the cases. And, and certainly that seems to have uh, really been adding a development to this that even under other interveners in the provinces challenging weren't. And I was wondering if you could tell me what the CTF position was on this. Absolutely. So we've been intervening. We've already intervened in Saskatchewan, Ontario, where we intervened in Alberta as well. You know, I had the pleasure of sitting in on the hearings and we're also going to be intervening in the Supreme Court as well. And I just need to, you know, make this clear in Alberta and at the Supreme Court level, we're the only non-government third-party organization standing up for taxpayers and fighting against the carbon tax. And, you know, we, we've made a number of points. So the first one is that, you know, the carbon tax is not an environmental plan. It is a tax plan. And the carbon tax... And the carbon tax, you know, is in fact a tax. It's not a fee. It's not a levy or any other type 
of federal creation. And because it's a federal, because it is a tax, it violates the very important principle of no taxation without representation because the tax rates aren't being voted by members of parliament. So because of that, it is violating that very important principle of no taxation without representation. Well, and that's an important aspect of this because we call it a carbon tax because it is. And and the, in fact, uh, understanding that Canadians have of it is that it's a tax. It's a tax on their fuel pumps, their home heating bills, all of these things. It's important to note the government actually denies that this is a tax. And at least in the Ontario and Saskatchewan cases, the courts tended to accept that. Yeah, I mean, we continue to push that it is absolutely a tax. Um, it is not a levy. It is not a fee. And, you know, the ruling in... The provincial court within Alberta actually focused on autonomy, so found that the carbon is unconstitutional because it because it's a clear um, violation of the balance of power. So the court in Alberta made it clear that natural resource development follows under the jurisdiction of a province and the federal carbon tax is a clear violation of this balance of power. I mean, the Alberta court ruling is is chock full of reasons why the balance of power and the division of powers within Canada is extremely important for the country to function. And so that we can keep checks on powers at the provincial level and at the federal level. And interestingly, the court ruling in Alberta went so far as to mention or to refer to the federal carbon tax as Trojan, as a type of Trojan horse legislation, which is buried within this. It gives the federal government um, a whole bunch of powers that could substantially erode provincial powers down the road. You know, it just opens up the door for the federal government to overstep or to step on provincial toes. Yeah, and that's huge. And, and that line jumped out to a lot of people, myself included, for the express reason that the government's whole defense here is that anything that is related to greenhouse gas emissions is an issue of national concern because the environment is an issue of national concern. And what the provinces have been pointing out, and I'm very glad they have, is that this would give the government license to regulate anything that causes an emission of some kind. So the federal government could step in and say, uh, we're banning cars or we're banning wood stoves or we're banning all of these things or we're outlawing a certain industry. And and that's where I think the insidiousness of this particular uh, tax comes in is, is that it gives the government license to pretty much go after you in many more ways than just this carbon tax. And you know, and the judges within the uh, within the majority ruling made that extremely clear and they issued many different warnings on opening the door to allow the federal government these types of powers and how they could you know because the matter of the federal carbon tax is the regulation of GHG emissions it opens the doors for them to do a whole bunch of different things it even talks about how they can regulate you know almost every aspect of natural resource development uh, of, of human life in general uh, for for example, the even the decision even talks about public transit. For example, so just overstepping in areas that are not under the federal jurisdiction. And you know, the court interestingly, the court dis- was talking about how you know climate change is important. But just because something is important doesn't mean that you can completely change the constitution and override the true balance of power that your jurisdiction has. 
So from a taxpayer perspective, I guess I wanted to ask you whether you think there's more of a, a political issue with the carbon tax or a legal issue, because I, I think that a lot of people thought that the last election was going to be in part a referendum on the carbon tax. And I'm not sure that narrative entirely took hold in the debate. And I mean, I would love to see Canadians reject this, but if it is illegal at the same time, I'd like to see courts reject it. Well, I think it, I think there's both a legal issue and a political issue at hand. So the legal issue, which we've already been kind of discussing, which is out outlined uh, fantastically within the Alberta Court of Appeal in the sense that it just it's overstepping the constitutional jurisdiction of the federal government. So there is a legal issue, um, which the court has made clear, but there's also, let's call it policy issue. And, and that policy issue is that a federal carbon tax is not an environmental plan. It is a tax plan. Um, continuing to shoot ourselves in the foot in Canada is not solving any type of global issue. Um, let's just look at British Columbia. You Let's just look to our friends in the West and you'll see that the carbon tax is, is doing a whole lot to bite our wallets, but really not much else. I mean, BC has the highest, but we're still seeing emissions going up. Um, in Canada, we make up about 1.6% of global emissions. So making it cost more money for, for Grandpa Joe and Grandma Jane to heat their homes isn't going to solve this global issue. Yeah, that's important. And I'm going to be talking later on in the show uh, about the Tech Frontier decision and some of the pipeline issues we've had. But I think all of these really reiterate a, an important commonality, which is that there's never been a, a greater significance on a country being open for business. And you can't do that if you're taxing your industries into oblivion, which really is where the carbon tax tends to go industry into oblivion or, or, or regulating your industry to oblivion i think we've seen a a common trend right now and it's that we're we're mm -hmm. making life harder for canadian families and for canadian businesses but that doesn't mean that we're helping any type of a global environment i mean you know we just heard that tech is uh, is withdrawing from that major 20 billion dollar project and that follows a serious trend um we've already seen because of regulatory issues political issues uh legal issues we've seen um the erosion of what we could have had $100 billion worth of resource projects being developed in Canada. And, you know, we just heard about the tech thing, but recently we've also heard about Saudi Arabia going forward with, uh, you know, over $100 billion worth of investment in developing uh, natural gas. Or, or in Russia, they're talking about over $150 billion investment for what they're touting as, you know, the biggest uh, investment in global oil. So as Canada continues to shoot ourselves in the foot, we're seeing other global players back energy development. Do you know what happens next in Alberta specifically? Does the carbon tax uh, become no longer in force in Alberta or does this still have to go towards the Supreme Court to have something that really binds the federal government? Well, you know, there's there are question marks on that front. And I think we're just going to have to wait and see because the Supreme Court is hearing the challenges from Ontario and Saskatchewan in March. Um, it looks, you know, so there are question marks, but it looks like that one will be for for a, maybe not all the marbles, but for a lot of the marbles. All right. Well, we'll certainly keep our eyes peeled on that. Thanks for your work on this. Franco Terrazano, Alberta Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. And good to have you on the show as well, sir. Hey, thanks for having me on, Andrew.
Thanks again to Franco. So that's actually, I think, a very important thing we ended on there, which is the uncertainty about where this goes in the future. And I've had a few questions about this, and I've talked to a couple of lawyers, because not being one myself, I try to avoid giving legal advice. And it sounds like there actually is not a certainty as to whether or not this becomes binding immediately. So the Alberta government can go to, I think it's the Court of Queen's Bench, but another court to basically certify the judgment, I've been told. And this could pull the federal carbon tax out of Alberta. But again, the other problem is that the Alberta case is not technically part of the appeal that's scheduled for the Ontario and Saskatchewan cases before the Supreme Court. So could the Supreme Court delay that and add Alberta in? Could it set a separate date for Alberta? seems ridiculous when the arguments are effectively the same. But ultimately, this is not just going to be an Alberta-specific solution. This is either going to be a national victory or a national loss as far as whether the carbon tax is constitutional. We know that the federal government is not backing down on political grounds, so the only real option is to get the Supreme Court to say, no, you cannot impose this on provinces. Now, this will not mean, I want to make a point here, this will not mean that provinces can't impose it themselves. British Columbia is all for a carbon tax. Manitoba, in many respects, is all for a carbon tax. Several of the Atlantic provinces are. But it means that for provinces that do care about not taxing people, like in Ontario, Alberta, and Saskatchewan, they will not be forced to by the federal government. And that's so key here. When we come back, we'll talk about the close for business ruling that we can put on Canada now that the Tech Frontier decision has come down. That's coming up on the Andrew Lawton Show in just a moment. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to the Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Great to have you tuned into the program. It brings me no pleasure to reach the conclusion that Canada is closed for business. We've been talking the last couple of weeks about these rail blockades, the impact they're having on the Canadian economy. Even after the government finally decided it was going to shut them down, it was too little too late in many respects because because they've already proven that these protesters don't care about the law. They don't care about the rule of law. And there was even a, an op-ed in, I can't remember what newspaper it was, saying stop using the rule of law to oppress Indigenous people or something like that. So they're actively saying that the rule of law is not something they legitimize, referring to the protesters, not to Indigenous people. I want to make that point very clear. But you look at the impact of this. The protests were not just about the coastal gas link pipeline. They were about something far more fundamental than that. And that was the idea that all energy projects, all infrastructure projects should be Kibosh. That's what these protesters want. It's not just this one. It's every single pipeline project, oil sector project, mining project, fracking, all of that. They don't like any of them whatsoever. And this goes hand in hand with the decision by Tech to withdraw from the Frontier Oil Sands project. Tech Resources, which has had a fair bit of uncertainty around this project for quite a while, made the decision this week in a letter to the government. It's withdrawing its application for regulatory approval for this project in northern Alberta. And they don't use the words political unrest or political instability in the letter, but they do talk about uncertainty. 
They talk about the fact that, well, they don't shy away from controversy necessarily. They think there needs to be a dialogue and a conversation and all of that. They say the growing debate around this issue has placed Frontier and our company squarely at the nexus of much broader issues that need to be resolved. In that context, it is now evident that there is no constructive path forward for the project. Questions about the societal implications of energy development, climate change, and Indigenous rights are critically important ones for Canada, its provinces, and Indigenous governments to work through. So what Tech is saying there, if you read between the lines, is that we think there's far too much of a political dimension to what was supposed to be an economic project, what was supposed to be an energy project, so they're backing away. Now, you'd think that if a company were to withdraw billions of dollars from the Canadian economy, the government would be clamoring for it. The government would be saying, wait, 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 no, 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 well, we, we can do better. We'll fix this. We'll fix this. But no, the government actually thanked tech for doing it. When tech withdrew this, kissing away Canadian jobs, billions of dollars in, of investment, the federal government said, quote, we have been informed by Tech Resources Limited that they have withdrawn their regulatory application for the proposed Frontier Oil Sands project in northern Alberta. We appreciate that Tech has made a difficult decision. We also recognize Tech's leading class consultation work on this project, yada, yada, yada. There's no doubt that fighting climate change is a global challenge. To meet this challenge here in Canada and internationally, we need to work together across jurisdictions and in partnership with the industry. Canada has the innovative spirit, talent, and know-how to lead the world with the most environmentally and socially responsible resources. There's more to it, but that's a joint statement by Environment Minister Jonathan Wilkinson and Seamus O'Regan, who's the Natural Resources Minister. And my goodness, what's happening here is a company decides it no longer wants to do business in Canada. Ergo, Canada is closed for business. And what happens? The federal government basically thanks them. There's no, well, we're disappointed by the decision, we understand. They're saying, yeah, we appreciate it. <laughs> we, we, you guys pulled out, so we don't need to say no, which we were probably going to do anyway. The federal government got out of having to kiss away jobs itself because the company decided, you know what, Canada is not exactly a place that we can imagine doing business right now. And this is so important. Remember what government was prepared to do to protect SNC-Lavalin jobs. Remember what government's been prepared to do whenever Quebec jobs have been on the line or jobs in various sectors that the liberal cronies are connected with. They will bend over backwards. But when there's oil sector jobs, energy sector jobs, a private company that's willing to put money down to create employment and to also contribute to Canada's energy independence, what does the federal government do? Oh, well, uh, you know, uh, they, they, they dither around until eventually this happens. So the last few weeks is not just about the coastal gas link pipeline. It's not just about the blockades in Belleville, the blockades in Vancouver, the blockades in existing territories across the country where these protesters have set up shop. It is now about every energy project imaginable because the government's inaction on this. I, I'm convinced it's not just about the protests. It's about the government's capitulation to the protesters, which is effectively what's been happening for the last, I mean, three weeks or so. So by the government not taking that seriously 
any company that knows it may have a similar situation on its hands is not going to go down that road and enter into a contract with Canada, basically. You know, one of the things that uh, they say in their press release, the tech executives, is that they're prepared to write down the $1.13 billion carrying value of the Frontier project. So they're posting a $1.13 billion loss right there because they're now backing away from Canada. They're backing away from Canada. And if you look at the volume of companies that have decided they want to either pull out of Canada altogether or companies that want to or feel they have to relocate from Canada since Justin Trudeau took office, it is not an insignificant group. It's not, a, it's not at all an insignificant group. You've got Encana, Kinder Morgan, Houston Oil & Gas, ConocoPhillips, Statoil, Shell, all companies that in some way or another have divested from Canada, either in part or in whole. I mean, Encana was the big one. This was at one point the quintessential Canadian energy success story, and now it is Ovintiv, domiciled in the U.S., headquartered in the U.S., uh, basically writing off the idea that Canada can be a home, that Canada can be a place that invests and invites capital. So I'm very, very annoyed with this because these are entirely preventable problems right now that the government is not just allowing to happen, but I would actually say inviting to happen, all because we've decided to give a vocal minority a de facto veto. And when the government finally does decide, oh, you know what, we're going to get involved in this, it becomes too little too late. And I find it fascinating because last week we spoke about the Conservative Party's response to Justin Trudeau's handling of this. They said it's a weak response. Justin Trudeau said, oh, no, 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 you don't get to talk now. You don't get to join our little meeting. We called him the Mean Girls Prime Minister. We had a graphic to go along with it, which people seem to like. But I find it fascinating that on Wednesday of last week or Thursday, whatever it was, I think it was Wednesday, Justin Trudeau said that the conservatives were not constructive because they thought law enforcement should be involved. And then this week, when Justin Trudeau finally wakes up to that same conclusion, it's the right path. It's what true leadership is. So the idea is only a good idea when Justin Trudeau comes up with it. But again, I said last week, and I hate to say I told you so, except I don't actually hate to say I told you so when I'm talking to the liberals, they had no option. It was always going to go this road, which is why they needed to go down this road further and do it earlier instead of waiting until they've already squandered any hope of a quick resolution to this. So, look, I think there's going to be a lot more of a problem that develops here because Justin Trudeau has showed that he doesn't actually want to do what's necessary to end these things. And I think that the longer-term implications on business, on industry, on investment are in that statement from Seamus O'Regan and Jonathan Wilkinson. We appreciate that tech has made a difficult decision. As a result, Cabinet will no longer be making a decision on the project. So they're saying, yeah, we, we like that they've done this so we don't have to. Nowhere in this is disappointment expressed. Nowhere in this is there a belief avowed that the Canadian government wanted this project in the first place. Any other time a company has closed down or a factory has shut down, the government will always do the same thing. They'll send out a statement saying, we're really disappointed. We want to work to fix this. We've hoped that we could fix this. We've hoped that we could save the jobs. There's none of that here. 
The liberals genuinely don't care about energy sector jobs. In fact, the liberal, it's not just about the jobs. They don't actually care about the energy sector. And if they do have any emotional investment to it, it is a negative one. In fact, indifference might actually be a bit of a step up from where the government is on this right now. It's absolutely insane to me that we have the country's largest energy sector, or sorry, the largest sector in Canada being energy, and the government just doesn't seem to care and doesn't want it to succeed, and in many cases, like now, looks like it actively wants it to fail. We have to, as a country, stand up against this. We do, because eventually it's going to be a lot more businesses that are making the decision that tech did, which is to say that it's not even worth trying. It's not even worth trying to do stuff in Canada. It's not even worth it to have this dialogue. We don't even want to engage in the process because we know that it's going to be secondary to this broader conversation that apparently needs to happen. And the conversation that needs to happen is not what tech is saying here, which is about climate change and indigenous rights and reconciliation. No, the conversation that needs to happen is, are we going to be a company that continues to put up roadblocks for business, or are we going to be a, a country that actually welcomes business? And not selectively, but welcomes investment, welcomes industry. That's the dialogue that needs to happen, and that's the dialogue that is nowhere near happening in Justin Trudeau's Canada. We've got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back. So I was actually on the weekend in Miami. I was there for a, a little seminar conference sort of thing, and I had a lot of fun. And I had a bit of downtime on the Saturday morning that I was there. So I decided I would go because I've been told that Miami is one of the greatest bagel places in the United States. Now, I don't want to insult the New Yorkers or Montrealers listening. I realize you guys have great bagels as well. I think it's people from Toronto, Montreal, and New York who've retired to Miami that have set up shop there. So I decided, okay, I'm going to go and find one. And Miami, if you've never been there, has a very sizable Jewish population. Again, retirees, I think. And as a result, it was Shabbat on Saturday morning. And I knew this, but I didn't really make the connection of all the bagel shops in Miami being closed with it being Shabbat. I just assumed there was at least one secular-owned bagel place. I was wrong, because I went to the hotel and I said, where's the best bagel? And without hesitation, she told me the name of this place. And I said, okay, where is it? She's like, well, it's, you know, it's a little bit far. It's, uh, you could walk there, but it's going to take you a bit, about a half an hour. And I said, you know what? For a good bagel, I can walk half an hour. If you've seen me, you know that I could stand to walk a little bit more anyway. So I go there. And uh, as I'm passing by all of these Orthodox Jews that are on their way to synagogue, it still doesn't really meet my mind that I'm not going to be able to fulfill the quest that I, I've set out to do. And then, of course, I get to the bagel place. It's closed for Shabbat. There's nothing around, and I end up walking back to the hotel. Thankfully, I found uh, a patisserie that I would settle for. They didn't have bagels, but they had coffee, and they had little French pastries. So uh, when you go to Miami, uh, you have to be very careful about uh, the, the operating hours of places. But I did want to share something more serious from this because I, I passed by, I think, a couple of synagogues, but one in particular stood out because there was a, a police car parked out front of the synagogue in Miami. And 
I didn't really think anything of it on the way to the bagel place because I just thought it was a police officer parked randomly on the street. I didn't make the connection of where he was. And on the way back, I actually peered into the synagogue and in the main doors, I saw that that police officer was actually uh, checking the people that were on their way in and had a list of some kind that he was checking names off of and people were having their bags checked. And, you know, everyone likes to talk about American gun culture, but there's something far more problematic about this. And and this is a a culture of anti-Semitism where you as a Jewish person going to synagogue have this expectation that something bad could happen there. More than I've ever had in a church, more than the people that I know in the U.S., even in states that have a very sizable gun ownership, have when they go to church. And we've all seen the stories of of why this is the case. I mean, these horrific, horrific attacks on synagogues. And what struck me was how dangerous it is when this reality becomes the new normal. When this becomes the new normal, when a young person who goes to that synagogue doesn't think twice about it because that's all they know, a world of fear. And my goodness, my sincerest prayers to the Jewish communities that have to face this. I I can't even imagine what it's like to live with that fear, all because of of the pervasiveness of Jew hatred. And I don't have an answer to it. I don't have a resolution. I I guess the only reason I wanted to share that story is because it was an eye-opening experience for me to see, not in the wake of headlines of tragedies that have happened, but to see the implication, and by extension, the fear, because something like that comes from a place of fear— preparedness and fear are very similar, but to see just how that has become enshrined in the Jewish identity in North America, and just how sorry I am to the Jewish people, and I know a lot of them uh, tune into the show, that that is what you have to contend with. So my thoughts and prayers with anyone that has to do that, and certainly hope for a future where that's no longer needed. When we come back, we'll wrap things up here on The Andrew Lawton Show on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. We are back, and you know what? Perfect time to talk about a double standard in the mainstream media. One of several, I think we can safely say. This one took place last weekend at the PC Party of Ontario's convention in, I think, Niagara Falls, when the media was barred from attending because it was a convention about policy. They wanted to keep it in the family, as the convention spokesperson said. But CBC, of course, still going to cover it from the perimeter. Mike Crawley, who's the CBC Queen's Park guy, was outside of the venue, and he was doing his stand-up, and not his comedy routine. That's what you call it when you talk to the camera. And he was doing this live as a matter of fact, and a security guard for the convention site decided to interfere by standing between Mike and his camera while he is live on air. And if you're listening to the audio of this podcast or watching the video, I'm going to play it on both. But do take a a watch or a listen at how this ended up unfolding. Those negotiations went on late last night, and he was um, frustrated about the fact that uh, the union was uh, striking instead of actually... um, um, instead of actually uh, uh, being at the negotiating table. So you've got to go. You can't be here. 
Excuse me. Okay, go. You gotta be sorry, here. I'm on. Excuse me. Yep. Sorry. I'm um, sorry, Vashi. There's a, a security trying to stop us from uh, doing this like report, kind of thing. Yeah. So the, the Ontario PC Party is trying to um, uh, has sent Who's people out here with? to try to chase us away. It's the Ontario PC Party is saying that. Uh, uh, yeah. So the Ontario PC Party is having this convention, and uh, they're saying that uh, media are not allowed. We weren't allowed inside. Okay, Mike. Now they're actually in the process of trying to chase us away from being outside on the sidewalk. Do you, do you want us to stay with you, or do you want to take a do you want to take a minute to move yeah, somewhere else? Uh, yeah. So. so. So if I can get you gentlemen to make your way off, we're going to trespass you. Please. Thank you. See the bears? The bears? Did you see them? <laughs> Sorry. So, yeah. we got we got two choices, gentlemen. Leave okay. peacefully or trespass. Is, we, Leave peacefully or trespass. There's no signs out here telling this me that... This is private property. There doesn't have to yeah, be a sign. Okay. Um, <laughs> yes, actually. Sorry, unfortunately. I, I think <laughs> okay, so uh, back to uh, what the education minister had to say about... Uh, <laughs> Hi. So, so. Now, I think that's certainly evidence of the fact that the show does, in fact, go on. When you're live, you have to just roll with the punches and do it. And a couple of moments later, I didn't play the full thing. A spokesperson for the party had, or a representative of the party, had stuck her head out the window and told the security guard to stand down. The security company then tried to throw the PC party under the bus, but the PCs said, no, 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 we never told them to stop people outside. We just told them that media are not permitted inside. So I'm on Team Crawley here. I, I think that if you're going to be covering an event from outside the building, you can do it on the sidewalk if you're not getting in anyone's way. I, I don't think that's unreasonable. And I am a firm believer in the fact that political parties, while they are within their legal rights to deny media access, they should not do it. They should allow media in. I'm a firm believer in that. But this is all too familiar for me because during the last federal election campaign, I was relegated to cover every single liberal event from the sidewalk. I was uh, I was forced to because the liberals were not letting me cover their events. They weren't letting me on the liberal plane. They weren't letting me do my job. So I was forced to cover from sidewalks. And thankfully, I was never removed from a sidewalk. I was removed from Lakehead University in Thunder Bay. I was removed from the road in Hamilton when I was pulled over by police officers. I've been uh, harassed, but I've never been told to leave the sidewalk because that's the only place they actually wanted me. And you know what? When this was all going on, I didn't hear from Mike Crawley. I didn't hear from all of the CBC reporters that were saying, oh my goodness, Mike, how dare you? Or how dare they do this to you? And this is all about press freedom and all of this. I didn't hear from any of the mainstream media reporters who are jumping up and down saying that this is an attack on the free press. Now, I defend their free press, even if I don't like the coverage that some of them put forward. But for me, it was that we don't like him. We're going to stay completely silent. And it hasn't always been that way, because when I was in London, England in July at the Global Conference for Media Freedom, Christian Freeland's office tried to bar me from a press conference, and the media, the mainstream media, stood firm and said, we are not going to cover this press conference unless you let Andrew from True North and Sheila Gunn-Reed from Rebel in, because we were the two they were trying to bar. And I was so moved in that moment that the media took a stand on principle at a media freedom conference. And I'm still very grateful for those reporters there for doing that. 
But that didn't happen during the federal election campaign. They were silent, with a few exceptions. The few people that did speak up were usually doing it to be mocking or snide. Apart from a couple of reporters from the National Post and the Toronto Sun, no one from CBC, no one from Toronto Star, no one from CTV came to my defense, not because they like me or respect me, but out of a respect of free press. Didn't happen. But now Mike Crawley of CBC is somehow a martyr for press freedom because he was harassed on a sidewalk wrongfully. And I said on Twitter that he is deservedly getting support, but it doesn't elude me that all of these people giving him support were silent when I was banned from the Liberals for weeks. See, Mike Crawley was actually allowed to carry on and the PC party apologized to him. The Liberals did not apologize to me for banning me from the events. The only apology I got was for having me forced removed from one particular one by police, and that was the Thunder Bay example. So be consistent because your hypocrisy will be the thing that sinks you. We have to wrap things up. My thanks to Franco Terrazano for coming on the show today, and all who called in, wrote in, tuned in, listened in. I know we don't take calls, but metaphorically. Thanks to all of you. We do appreciate it, and we'll talk to you in a couple of days here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day, Canada. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.